Welcome to Politics is Everything, where we venture outside the White House and U.S. Capitol to see how politics in the era of Donald Trump is having an impact on virtually everything. I'm Caitlin Huey Burns, national political reporter for Real Clear Politics and your host for this podcast. Each week, we examine an industry or an issue affected by politics in a new way. And on the show today, we are mixing two of my most favorite topics, politics, of course, and food. Before we get into the meat of the subject, if you can forgive the pun, first, some lighter fare. Trump and his family met with Pope Francis this week as part of the president's first foreign trip. When greeting First Lady Melania, the pontiff asked jokingly, what do you give him to eat, potitsa? The Slovenian-born Mrs. Trump smiled and nodded at the mention of a traditional dish of her homeland. Soon, the internet was ablaze with references. So don't be surprised if potitsa, a type of Slovenian pastry, makes its way to a restaurant near you. This all leads us to today's topic, the way in which politics is having an impact on the restaurant industry. Restaurateurs, chefs, and food and beverage companies aren't exactly strangers to politics. For example, the renowned top chef host Tom Colicchio has been particularly active when it comes to food policy, labor, and the environment. During the 2016 campaign, he launched the group Plate of the Union, which highlights these issues. According to data crunched by the Center for Responsive Politics, the food and beverage industry has given nearly $170 million in federal campaign donations since 1990, and nearly 70% of those contributions have gone to Republicans. Related corporations have pushed back against regulations regarding nutrition and food labeling. Fast food companies earned critique from former First Lady Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign. The new president, as we know, happens to be a big fan of fast food. So last night after the town hall, I went to celebrate at McDonald's. I had a number one meal, which is my favorite meal. I understand you like, you are a big fast food guy as well. Did you actually bring fast food to your plane sometimes? I do, sometimes, and, and frankly. What, what do you eat, when you, when you roll up at a McDonald's, what is, what does Donald Trump order? Uh, fish and light, sometimes, right? <laughs> uh, the, uh, the Big Macs are great, the quarter pounder with cheese. I mean, I, it's great do stuff. People- but it's Trump's hardline stance on immigration that has created a new sense of activism within the restaurant industry, particularly among celebrity chefs. I mean, there are so many issues, political issues, that touch the food and restaurant industry, from immigration to healthcare to trade to the environment, to name a few. And especially because of this administration's immigration policies and the unique circumstances of the president's business, restaurant owners and workers are becoming politically active in a way that we haven't really seen before. That's Maura Judkis, food and culture reporter for The Washington Post. I'll chat with Maura later on in the show about the impact politics is having on her beat, including how your restaurant receipt may be the new political battleground. Industry insiders are keeping a close eye on food and worker policy in this administration, including things like environmental issues, food assistance programs, and the minimum wage. They're also watching how the shaky political climate is shaping consumers' personal outlook on the economy, which of course helps determine whether they spend money dining out. The the latest political climate has created a sense of uncertainty with the American consumer. And because of that, consumers are tightening their belts, they're spending less in spite of a very strong economy where unemployment rates are low, confidence is high, 
gas prices are, are pretty low for historical purposes. That's Darren Tristano, a restaurant consultant for Technomic. He has also seen rising student debt among young people who typically like to dine out, affecting their discretionary spending. But the biggest issue so far has involved immigration. Immigration is a fascinating subject in the world of hospitality, labor, and employment relations. That's David Sherwin of the Cornell School of Hospitality. Everybody agrees that we need, um, and, and the industry agrees, um, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. Everybody agrees that we need immigration reform, that immigrants are a vital part of our industry. In February, the restaurant industry was a top participant in A Day Without Immigrants. And since Trump's inauguration, restaurants around the country are seeking sanctuary status for immigrant employees. According to a Pew Research study, undocumented immigrants make up 11 percent of the food service industry in the United States. Still, industry experts say that there are economic risks for restaurants that become too political. Again, Darren Tristano. Um, and we've done some research with consumers to back this up. And when we ask consumers, do they think restaurants should take a political stand, very few agree with that statement. In fact, it's, it's about one in four. And so I think Americans today still believe that restaurants are here to serve food, not to serve political perspective. Trump's rhetoric on immigration was the center of a news-making legal battle with celebrity chef Jose Andres. In 2015, Andres, an immigrant from Spain, withdrew a deal to open a restaurant in Trump's new D.C. hotel. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. Andres argued that Trump's stances would turn away staff and patrons. His withdrawal prompted Trump to bring a breach of contract lawsuit. Another famed chef, Jeffrey Zarkarian, also withdrew his plans for the hotel. Last month, the Trump Organization settled both suits out of court. Andres was particularly active during the 2016 presidential contest and evoked his immigrant story while campaigning for Trump's rival, Hillary Clinton. My name is Jose Andres, and I am an immigrant. Oh yeah, you can clap. This November, I will cast my first vote for the next president of the United States of America. We are not supposed to mention him until he doesn't apologize to every Latino, to every Mexican, to every woman, to every veteran, and to any person that he has insulted. The Andres battle wasn't the last involving restaurants and Trump, and some don't involve immigration. Cork Wine Bar in Washington, D.C. recently brought a suit against the Trump Hotel, arguing that it creates unfair competition. Restaurant Opportunities Centers United, a group of restaurant workers and owners, is part of a similar lawsuit. But beyond the lawsuits and campaigns, some consumers are protesting Trump through restaurant reviews. The company's signpost has been keeping tabs on this trend of people leaving bad reviews of Trump restaurants and properties. 
They found the negative reviews are outpacing the positive ones by a margin of 60% to 40%. Signpost estimates that online reviews could cost the Trump Organization over $60 million in losses. Still, the intersection of politics and food isn't all negative. The website Eater reported that food and alcohol delivery companies saw a sharp uptick on election night. And in some ways, it's bringing people together. Maura Judkis of The Washington Post said she has seen new trends involving food and politics, like food tours and supper clubs designed around political topics and conversation. Food can be a way to, to have tough conversations. Um, it's very non-threatening to get together over, over a nice dinner and, and have a, a civil conversation. So I think that we, we might see more kind of ways that food is being used to promote understanding. I talked with Maura more in depth about the impact Trump-era politics is having on the food and restaurant industry. And I think also because, you know, everyone has to eat, everyone loves going to restaurants, they also recognize that they have an opportunity to make their their political voices heard um, by acknowledging and celebrating the immigrants that work for them and also um, for speaking out for the causes that they think are important. And you've written about the the impact, uh, the, the kind of the intersection of the immigration debate and the restaurant industry. One of the stories that you uh, wrote was about, um, you know, this, this day without immigrants and kind of the, the impact it was having on restaurants. Um, I'm wondering if you can kind of explain a little bit more about what you found. Sure. So the entire food industry from farm to table is staffed in a large part by immigrants. Um, immigrant workers pick produce, they process livestock, they drive distribution trucks to get our food to grocery stores and restaurants, and they work in restaurant kitchens. Uh, Restaurants alone employ 1.8 million foreign-born workers, which is 7% of the foreign-born workforce in the United States. And so restaurants and farms are understandably very worried about um, any kind of immigration crackdown, which would cause them to lose their workforce. And they've started to protest in ways both large and small. And one of those was the February Day Without Immigrants strike in Washington, which forced a lot of restaurants to close um, and and allow their uh, employees to strike and protest and march that day. Um, Anthony Bourdain, during the campaign, said that without immigrants, every restaurant in America would shut down, um, which might be hyperbole, but at the same time, they're a really important part of that workforce, and the restaurateurs who own these restaurants are are speaking up to defend their employees as well. And what was the impact of that day? I mean, you profiled a restaurant owner who uh, was kind of becoming, uh, kind of filling all those shoes in one day and, and essentially said that, that he would have trouble doing that. Yeah, yeah. A lot of restaurants, um, you know, some of them just didn't even have enough people. They were forced to close um, and and eat a whole day's revenue. Um, another type of restaurant, maybe some of them tried to, to fill in and to show uh, their customers what it would be like to have a day without immigrants. And that often meant, you know, maybe a curtailed menu um, being made by people who don't typically work in the kitchen. A lot of times we would see restaurant owners step into the into the kitchen and they would be flipping burgers themselves. And some of them weren't doing a very good job of it, actually, uh, because it's not what they're used to doing. And, and a lot of them acknowledged that their immigrant workers are much better cooks than they are and that they would really be left without them. That's so interesting. And it's interesting that they participated in it, too, because there would be an economic uh, disadvantage for them that day, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, restaurants, it's a really tough business to run because 
They, they have very slim profit margins. They pay a lot in rent, especially in cities. They pay a lot in food costs and labor as well. And so when they lose a day like that, um, it, it can really hurt them economically too. And, and the same would happen if they were to lose employees. They, they would really be scrambling to, to figure out what to do. Were there any restaurants that, you know, didn't allow their workforce to participate in this day without immigrants? Um, there were a lot of restaurants that that their employees decided um, en masse to work that day. Um, the restaurants, you know, in, in Washington, D.C., which is where I was writing about the restaurants, um, people are pretty liberal. There were a lot of restaurants that that decided to just give their employees the option. And some employees, you know, they, they didn't want to miss a day's wages, so mm-hmm. so they decided to come in that day after all. So there, mm-hmm. there were some restaurants that were unaffected by the strike. Another really interesting story that you wrote was about how the culture wars are kind of making their way to restaurant receipts in the Trump era. Explain what you mean by that and tell us about your reporting for that story. So we've seen um, a number of restaurants that have kind of taken this political battleground onto their receipts, and it comes from both sides, actually. Um, You know, there have been workers in restaurants that have been harassed recently, a couple of incidents of people withholding tips and writing things like tips for citizens only or America first on their receipts. Um, And that's led to some restaurants declaring themselves sanctuary restaurants, which is uh, a restaurant that pledges to do everything to protect their workers from harassment, especially harassment regarding their country of origin. Um, And that's also led restaurant owners to kind of fight back in this subtle way, where we've seen a couple of restaurants that um, on the the receipt printout, when you receive your bill, um, they'll write something at the bottom like, immigrants cooked your food, or immigrants already make America great on their receipt, just as like a little nudge to people to remind them that these are the people who are actually making your food in the kitchen. Um, And it, it kind of extends this political discourse to a place where it really never went before, especially because when you think about a receipt, in a way, a receipt is getting the last word. The last person to sign the receipt or send it back is the person who who gets the final word. And so um, it's a way for restaurant owners to really just remind people about the impact of immigrants on the restaurant industry. That's so fascinating. It's it's an uh, area that you wouldn't, as you mentioned, think that that politics would enter into, and that kind of uh, kind of shows where we are at this point. I'm wondering too, you know, in reporting for that story, did any of these restaurant owners who were, um, you know, making their their views vocal on these receipts, was there any concern about you know wade, wading into the political realm in a traditionally non political atmosphere? I mean, a lot of people think that um, you know eating and meals are, are sometimes safe from politics, but um, not so much anymore. No, definitely not. Yeah. I mean, definitely um, some of these restaurants uh, did suffer some consequences. Um, There was one restaurant in New York, um, actually owned by a New Zealander chef, uh, who printed this pro-immigration message on his receipt, and he was completely inundated with hate calls. Um, He also got a lot of positive messages, too. But um, there were people who were calling saying, I'll never be, go to your restaurant again. Um, and then he would ask, he would actually ask where they were from. And this restaurant is in New York, and they would say that they're from Missouri or somewhere else. And he was like, not going to lose sleep over someone halfway across the country boycotting his restaurant. Um, but yeah, there there is a concern. You know, there are some there are some chefs who do prefer to keep politics out of it. Um, 
there during the campaign, uh, there were a lot of questions about whether or not restaurants in Washington would serve to the Trump family if uh, if they showed up at the restaurant for dinner. And many restaurateurs said, yes, of course they would, because we're in the hospitality business and our job is not to turn away customers. Yeah, so that brings us into another really interesting part of this trend that we're seeing. You know, the, the celebrity chefs, of course, and we know, too, that Donald Trump was a, is a celebrity, right? Um, he <laughs> lived in New York up until a few months ago, um, you know, very involved in this kind of thing. Um, so that kind of clash is really interesting to me. Have you seen, um, you know, any more evidence of, of, of chefs kind of clashing with this new president? Um, the obvious one that we all think of is, is Jose Andres. Yeah, of course. Um, and that lawsuit was recently settled. Um, as as we remember, Jose Andres uh, and and Trump were both embroiled in a lawsuit when um, Jose Andres pulled out of the Trump Hotel uh, because of Trump's comments about immigrants. And um, since that lawsuit has been settled, you know, Jose has really activated other chefs, I think. Uh, that's been a, a huge impact of his actions. He campaigned for Clinton. His own immigrant story was very powerful. And I think a lot of other chefs have really been influenced by that. Um, we've also seen other restaurants that have sued uh, the Trump Organization, too. There's a, another lawsuit from the owners of the restaurant called Cork in Washington, and they are seeing the president alleging that his continued ownership of the hotel and restaurant constitutes unfair competition that damages their businesses. And they aren't seeking any damages, but they're actually just trying to prohibit the, the hotel and restaurant from operating while he owns it. Uh, the president has said that he is immune to such a lawsuit. But I mean, this is a really new territory for restaurants in Washington because they are competing directly with the president. And that is harming their businesses because, of course, people who come from out of town, uh, especially people who come for political reasons rather than tourism, are more likely to to frequent the president's businesses. And so they see that as a really unfair advantage. Oh, that's really interesting. And, you know, there's been a lot of reporting about how there were some concerns about, you know, D.C. restaurants and kind of the culture changing um, with this new president. I'm wondering if you've seen more evidence of that um, or are things pretty much um, in terms of the restaurant's perspective, um, uh, kind of seeing how things play out? Mm -hmm. I think um, in terms of, of taste, you know, there was there was a lot of credit given to the Obama administration for kind of transforming the D.C. social and restaurant scene uh, because the president, you know, or President Obama, I should say, um, you know, he, he brought a lot of young people to the city. Uh, his wife was very involved in healthy eating. We saw more vegetarian restaurants, more ethnic restaurants, more interesting restaurants compared to the Bush years because there's the stereotype of course, that Republicans really like to eat steak. And mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's not entirely mm -hmm. true. We have a lot of steakhouses still. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, people give the presidency a lot, maybe too much credit for how it shapes um, the actual menus of D.C. restaurants. Uh, it's really more an issue of, um, you know, who is going to these restaurants. Um, and under the Trump presidency, of course, uh, his restaurant is doing quite well because there are a lot of people who who want to curry favor with him. And also he, he has gone to his restaurant a lot, of course. He hasn't gone to any other restaurants. 
Um, and we've seen kind of uh, a rise in maybe like the clubby sort of old school, like very private restaurants. We don't see um, Trump administration members going out to the kinds of restaurants that the Obamas used to go to. That's interesting. Do you think that's a matter of, of age, too? In part. I think it's a matter of age, and I think I think it's really also a privacy thing, too. Mm. I mean, restaurants like Cafe Milano, which is like a traditional political haunt, um, it's, it's really doing well, from what I hear, um, under the Trump administration, because it's, it's very discreet and very private, whereas the Obamas, um, they would go to, you know, they'd go to, like, Jose Andres's restaurants, which are all very open, um, and it was always very exciting for people to spot them out in public, whereas in D.C., they might not receive that same kind of reception from the public, too, so I think privacy has become a concern for them. Hmm. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea of, of celebrity chefs becoming activists, and there, there are two questions I have related to that point. I mean, one, is there a concern that that jeopardizes uh, their own brand in a way, or is there a feeling that it um, you know helps promote their respective brands? Um, and then the other question I had, kind of related to that, is you know whether uh, whether we'll see more of this kind of activism, whether it's attributable to Donald Trump specifically, or if it's attributable to this idea that people are are so much more, at least over the past few years, really interested in in celebrity chefs. I mean, given the various TV shows on Bravo and, and elsewhere, um, these chefs have kind of created their own, you know, brands and entities. Mm-hmm. I think we will see a lot more activism from chefs, actually. And, and typically, they have already been involved in some political causes, and they're really ramping up um, that activism now. Um, for example, Tom Colicchio, he, uh, he was lobbying on Capitol Hill just a few weeks ago, actually, about the Farm Bill, um, because when you think about it, there are so many issues in the Farm Bill that, that affect chefs. They're very concerned about the environment because that's how our food is grown. They're concerned about pesticides, and they they really care about those issues. Another thing that chefs have traditionally been a big advocate for is SNAP, too, which Republicans would like to cut. Um, and so they they have also been lobbying on behalf of SNAP, and they've even, you know, some celebrity chefs have even floated the idea of a march, a food march on Washington. We've had all of these great marches with, with such turnout lately in Washington, and they think that they could, could bring a crowd that could talk about the environment, could talk about food aid, could talk about health care and immigration as well, and trade. Trade is something that also affects chefs in a great deal, um, especially when there was a lot of talk about how the president would pay for a wall um, and they floated the proposed import tax on Mexican goods. You know, much of the produce we eat comes from Mexico, so so that would really affect chefs and restaurants in a great deal. Right. Your story about how uh, your guacamole could be paying for uh, Trump's wall was was fascinating <laughs> in that regard, and and we forget how uh, influential these kinds of pieces of legislation are uh, to to these chefs. I'm wondering too, you know, besides the the policy front, which is critical for them. Can you imagine them kind of going out on the campaign trail? I mean, you mentioned that Jose Andres was a, a supporter of Hillary Clinton, for example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it, it depends on, of course, what happens over the next year or two. But but I think that chefs really do feel activated in a way that they haven't been before. Um, and with Jose, I mean, he has, he has such a powerful immigrant story, too. Um, he really is kind of the American dream for immigrants. And so um, campaigns, you know, of course would be could be really wise to utilize someone with a story like that um especially because celebrity chefs 
are, are very beloved too. I mean, people, people love to eat, people love their food. Um, so they could really have a powerful message. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and the followings that they have amassed either through television or through, you know, Instagram celebrity chefs and YouTube chefs and um, people kind of up and coming in the industry are amassing huge public followings, which is fascinating. Um, so mm -hmm. kind of leveraging those. Um, I, I kind of wanted to end on a, a lighter note, if we could. I'm wondering if you've seen any <laughs> kinds of fun um, or interesting uh, ways that, that politics is playing into restaurants. I'm thinking of, you know, foods named after Trump or representative of, of certain uh, politicians or specials or anything like that, either in D.C. Or, or elsewhere, kind of playing into this new presidency. Oh, yeah, definitely. There have been a number of pop-up restaurants that have poked fun at the president, um, in Washington especially. Uh, there's this one restaurant, Barrel, on Capitol Hill, uh, during the election had Trump-themed drinks, and <laughs> the best part was they had these oversized menus designed to make people's hands look very small as they held them. Um, <laughs> and the drinks were, were named after the president's quotes. Uh, one of them was, quote, part of the beauty of me is that I'm very rich. And it was made from like this very, very, very old bourbon, mint sugar, and freedom was <laughs> another ingredient. <laughs> and there was another cocktail called um, He's a War Hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? And that was another bourbon drink um, as well. In the same bar, you know, they kind of they like to antagonize. Uh, they did a Russian-themed pop-up for inauguration with Russian vodka and beer, and um, kind of the piece de resistance was this mural of Trump's cabinet as the Last Supper, so they made everyone look very grotesque and very silly, and um, it drew huge crowds. It was very, very popular. Um, so I think restaurant owners also realized that, you know, they can kind of capitalize on this in a very fun way, um, especially in Washington where people are quite liberal and they can kind of take out their frustration over a good drink. Thanks to our guests and thank you for joining us for Politics is Everything. I'm Caitlin Huey-Burns and I hope you'll tune in again next week. Thank you.